Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. And oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer the effects of Takayasu's arteritis if you inflamed me with the idea that you missed this week's show. The time for endowment building is now. That's Deborah Kaplan Pallavi's new book. She's with me to explain why that title is a simple truth. On Tony's Take Two, Planned Giving Accelerator. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn two.co. It's my pleasure to welcome Deborah Kaplan Pallavi. And before I continue with her official bio, I should have asked you before we started recording, but I, you're suffering a lackluster host. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? I was just going to commend you. You were one of the few people that have pronounced it correctly. Good for you. Oh, good. Thank you very much. All right. Deborah kaplan Pallavi, PhD, consultant and author. Her third book, published in 2021, is The Time for Endowment Building is Now, Why and How to Secure Your Organization's Future. She's been a frontline endowment fundraiser, researcher, university teacher. She's trained numerous boards and development professionals to achieve fundraising success. Her consulting practice is at DeborahPolivy.com. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you. My pleasure to have you on Nonprofit Radio. Endowment, the, the title of the book, Endowment. <laughs> The time for endowment building is now. Why is that so? Well, we've all heard about the transfer of wealth uh, from baby boomers to whomever baby boomers choose to transfer their wealth to. And if we don't capture that money now, there is going to be, I don't know, very little opportunity in the future. People are my age and uh, younger, older are dying. We've made more money, particularly on the stock market and real estate than ever before. And if not-for-profits work hard, they can certainly do a good job in capturing this money for their own sustainability. This wealth transfer was originally documented by uh, two two professors at uh, Boston College, Havens and Shervish, right? Yes. I've had Paul Shervish on the show. I, I don't know I don't know Professor Havens. Um, say a little about, you know, just summarize. You, you, you have, by the way, I, I admire, as a former attorney, I love all your footnotes. And, <laughs> and thank you for putting them at the end of a chapter and not end notes at the end of a book where I have to flip all the way back there. Thank you for deciding to put footnotes at the end of each chapter. An author, an author makes no decisions. I have to claim <laughs> that. That's what the publisher did, not oh, I. All right. Well, my, my, but I'm uh, glad grand- you liked it. <laughs> My gratitude to them. I appreciate either the bottom of the page or um, or the end of a chapter. So you you cite Havens and Shervish. Just say a little about their uh, about their research, the, the magnitude of this wealth transfer, and and we're, we're you know the 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 trillions of dollars that we're anticipated to see, and we are starting to see, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not as familiar with their actual research. I'm quoting them like other people quoted them. When I began this book, it really wasn't about the transfer of wealth. It was the about trying to get people away from the language of planned giving toward endowment development. And then when I began to read and do my own research, I came across this study. I had heard about it years ago, but I was refreshed in doing um, the research for this book. And and I realized that the timing was the factor. It wasn't necessarily the language. It was, hey, guys. And they say in their conclusions, nonprofits are going to get a lot of money from this transfer. And then they say, if not-for-profits work harder and are more aware and don't do it in a serendipitous fashion, but do it in a very conclusive way in a decision-making way that they'll do a lot better than they ever imagined. And so that's their conclusion. And I incorporated it in my book and in the book's title. And wasn't the magnitude of that something like 50, 
$59 trillion or $59 trillion? Somewhere, somewhere in that. I have the, the oh, numbers, okay. but it's, uh, it's 57, 59. It doesn't matter. It's a okay. lot of money. <laughs> right. Well, what's $2 trillion between friends? All right. Yeah. It's not in the thirties. It was, I, I thought so. I thought it was 50, 59. Yeah. And, high and double, that, high double that, digits of trillions of dollars. And that was before the huge increase in the stock market and the huge increase of what's happened in terms of asset value because of COVID. So the money really, as you're, you're right, who knows what we're talking about yeah. today? Yeah. Yeah. Their research was like early 2000s, wasn't yes. it? Late, yes. late 1990s, early 2000s. So it's at least 20 years old. And, and yeah, the, the way the way uh, asset values have increased since then, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, were you talking a hundred trillion dollars from baby boomers to the next generation? I, I don't know, but it's huge. Even even if it was flat, it would still be fifty nine trillion, which is enormously big. So, uh, you know, as we as we sit here today, uh, Congress is debating whether to spend one trillion dollars or three and a half trillion dollars, and we're talking about a. 20 times the order of magnitude, the larger end of that scale. So the, that spectrum. So a lot of money. Let's leave it at that. Okay. That's a terrific observation when you uh, compare it to the congressional numbers. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, the, the magnitude is enormous. Um, all right. So let's talk about uh, types of endowment. Can we, uh, can we make sure that everybody's got a baseline understanding of quasi versus permanent endowment? Can you take care of that for us, please? Yes. A permanent endowment is that in which um, money is invested and there is a spending policy. In other words, a certain percentage is distributed every year. The donor, according to the law, the donor determines what goes into a permanent endowment. The donor decides, hey, I don't want my money spent today. I want it to go into the permanent endowment. And I have set up my gift and the verbiage in my gift accordingly. Now, many donors either are unaware that they have that choice or they don't choose to put their money into the permanent endowment. So they say, okay, not for profit, you do with my money what you want. And many organizations will spend that money, it doesn't go into any endowment, or they'll put it in what's called a board-directed endowment or a quasi-endowment, which means the board can use that money as it sees fit. What happens for the most part when boards pay attention is that they say, okay, we'll put that money into a quasi-endowment or a board-directed endowment, but we need XYZ votes in order to take it out. In other words, the board itself makes it difficult to spend that money so that it's done quite judiciously, as opposed to just spent every day on regular expenditures. So we have different thresholds of spending capacity. So in one, and we're going to flesh this out, there's uh, state law governing that you cannot spend principle of the endowment without going through enormous hurdles usually or versus the board being able to approve spending of, of the principal or some folks, you know, you might call it the corpus. I don't like to get too technical on nonprofit radio, but right, right. The, the principal, the, uh, ver- so a, a board mechanism for spending that. Exactly. That In your first example, the law says if a donor determines or uh, indicates that, that he or she wants the money or they want the money to go into a permanent endowment, This is what the law subscribes. It's the second one that's really kind of equivocal because boards have great discretion over what they do with particularly estate gifts that come in without any donor direction. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that law a little bit. Uh, Up MIFA, the, the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act. Correct. I wasn't going to ask you to cite the, the acronym, but I, I like it. I can't even pronounce it. I I'll have just, I call it up now, but it, so it's Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Acts, but okay. it depends on whether your state has adopted. You have to, if you're going to embark on having a, 
uh, a permanent endowment, you need to know what your state law says about that, because this uniform law is not necessarily adopted in all the states. It was a it was a recommendation. Uh, and no, okay. I think at this point in time, it's adopted by all states. Yeah. Don't, um, don't some states, though, uh, modify might, it based the legislature might modify it. So it may not right. be identical. It's probably right. not identical in all 50 states. Right. But for more or less, it is identical and it's donor directed. Okay. And it was an attempt by state governments to um, oversee the way in which nonprofits were using their bequests in particular, but other future gifts. Endowment monies. Right. right. Money's placed in these permanent endowments. Exactly. Uh, you know, they're based, the state law is basically saying, keep your promise. Correct. Keep, you got to keep your promise to the donor. And here's a law that enforces that. Exactly. It enforces your promise. Okay. Okay. And then the quasi, the board has some flexibility, as you described. And I guess if they want to be very restrictive, then they would say, like, it takes a three quarters vote or maybe a hundred percent. Maybe every board member has to agree to take money from our, the principle of our endowment. But there's a real difference in that the, in the former, the UMIFA or the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds. UMIFA, yeah. There, that's a law. Right. The board has great discretion in terms of the board endowment. And that's where I really focus my book is, hey, board, have you really analyzed what you're doing with these monies? And do you have policies and guidelines do you have a preference whether you want permanent endowment or quasi-endowment? And and the most important thing, I think, is once you have really uh, determined what you want, really thought about it, uh, talked about it, have you communicated your preferences to the donor and communicated to the donor why you prefer one model versus the other? So I'm really asking for boards to address this issue and not just let it go by as they receive monies. Right. Okay. We have an endowment, so we'll just put it in a savings account. Yeah, no, there's a lot more to it. All right. You said a lot there. We're going to unpack some of that. Um, First, does it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Couldn't, couldn't a nonprofit have both? Couldn't have a permanent endowment and a quasi endowment? And most do. Yes. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. Crisis communications. You want to keep turn two in your back pocket so that when you have a crisis or if, uh, certainly I'm not hoping it on you, wishing it on you, not at all. If you have a crisis, then, you know, you need to be communicating consistently, but not identically with your employees, your board, Donors, maybe volunteers, and possibly the public through the media. Now, all those messages are not the same. I'm sure your board doesn't get the same message that the public gets. So you've got to be consistent, but different, right? Turn two can help you. They do crisis communications. So if you need help in a bad situation, that's why I'm suggesting you know, keep Turn to in your back pocket. If you've got something bad that's gone down, you need help communicating with all your different constituencies, turn to turn to, right? Turn-to.co. Now back to the time for endowment building is now. Now, in terms of the policies, let's talk about just how endowments generally, both kinds, are generally treated, right? The way the way we spend just a little and, you know, what, 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 what do you see there? What are your recommendations around how much to spend each year? There are um, averages that most organizations use. They come out of national organizations and what have you. I've seen them as low as 3%, as high as 6%, 7%, particularly during COVID times. They really increased because people wanted to get more money out to their respective communities and clients, patrons, however you want to call the users 
of the monies. Um, but what mostly happens is there's a rolling average and the rolling average, it like a three year, like, a like three a year, year rolling year. average. And that allows you or the organization to think about, aha, we don't want to take the most one year when our, um, we have great proceeds, asset management, we've got great returns. In the next year, we have bad returns. So they don't do it according to the return. They do it according to a percentage, and it evens out the kind of money that is going into the budget, as opposed to high, low, high, low, high, low. This way, with a rolling average, you're much more aware, and you can be futuristic in terms of your budget allocations and creation of budgets. So what we're talking about is, you know, uh, let's say a, a small, mid-sized organization has a, a $1 million. I like round numbers. They work, they're easier for me to figure out. Uh, as a $1 million endowment. And let's say it's a, it's, a, it's a permanent endowment, the way we're describing. Yeah, it's a permanent endowment. And, and, and in, in year one, they spend they spend, decide to spend four percent. So then forty thousand right. dollars comes out of the endowment, and that can be used for. You know, there may be restrictions on how it gets used if if people have like named programs that are part of their endowed that are their endowed funds. So then part of that forty thousand has to go there to honor your promises to those donors. But then other other money may come out and be unrestricted, and so you're you're. The presumption is that you're spending less than what you earn through investment management each year. So maybe you earned seven or eight percent in the year, but you spent only four percent in year one. So that the balance of what you earned goes back in. Does that does that sound right? Yes, and the the balance of what you earned. So in your example, three percent goes back into the corpus, and four percent of the new number because now we've grown by three percent. So the next year you get that much more. And that's why it's a rolling average because the corpus, let's say you don't make 7%, you make 2% and you're spending 4%. Then you have a minus number. So the, the purpose of all of this is to somehow get what you receive every year to be predictable and not go up and down and down and up. That's a huge advantage to having an endowment. Exactly. You'll know, you know, you're trying to diversify your revenue streams. And this is another revenue stream for you that you can count on. So when you do have a bad year and you lose money or only earn one or 2%, like you're saying, you still can count on the 4% or 5%, whatever your board has determined for that year is going to come out and it'll support you in the bad years. And you'll be profiting your endowment. You'll be growing your endowment in the good investment years. But that is also a board decision. The board has to also address that spending policy. It can't just be, well, let's see, the CFO says this year we're going to spend 4% and now, gee, it's grown. Let's spend 5% next year. And so what if it's going down? So in order to keep that money coming, we'll do 6%. Again, the board has to wrestle with this decision-making and not just let it be haphazard. And a lot of times they, they, the boards will board will get advice from the investment manager, what, what they predict will happen in the, in the next year or two uh, and how confident they are in that prediction, what we've earned over the past several years and what that tells us perhaps about the future you know, so you can, the board can get input often from an investment manager. And, you know, and this applies if you have a $100,000 endowment and you're looking at $4,000 or $5,000 coming out each year. You're still, you know, it doesn't matter the scale. The principles that you're describing are all the same. The board needs to decide. It's not just let's decide in December what we're going to take out on January 1st. There's, there needs to be, right, there needs to be a, a, a board evaluation of this. And a, and a policy around how your endowment is treated. Exactly, one hundred percent. Okay, cool. Um, let's take a little higher level view. You, uh, you have you first of all, you have a chapter 
why we need an endowment, or maybe we don't. And I thought, well, I, I got to look back at the title of the book because I thought, the title of the book I thought was uh, now's the time for endowment building. So, all right, but uh, it's mostly a pro. It's probably ninety percent a pro chapter. But let's talk a little about some other advantages, and then you you name a disadvantage, and maybe maybe I missed uh, other disadvantages in terms of uh, equity across the years. But um, acquaint us. Uh, so aside from having a steady revenue stream, one of many, hopefully, that we can count on through in the year, why else might we want to have a, an endowment, either quasi or permanent? First, let me go back to that um, title of that chapter. Do we need an endowment or maybe we don't or whatever? Yeah, uh, that's that's what my favorite is. chapter in the whole book. And I'm so glad you picked that out because I think that's a very important issue. Do we even need an endowment? Yeah. With the UMFLA or the Uniform Prudent Investment Act, there it says you have to have it if the donor directs it. But what about all this other stuff? Do you really need an endowment? And I always believe you do because you can have a really bad year in the market. Or you can have donors, you can have a donor who's really supported you for ages, especially if you're a small or middle size organization. And all of a sudden, that donor either has a bad economic year or the donor can have say, you know, I don't like you anymore. I don't like your exec or your development director really insulted me and didn't handle me well. So you know what? You're done. You're out of my gift giving. And if you or look at the federal government, it changes its allocations on a regular basis. So if you don't have an endowment. Can I just add one more foundation priorities? Foundation priorities change too. Ah. Or, or foundation may agree to fund you for three years and then that's it. And, and that's you thought fun. they would extend another three years, and but they're not, they're keeping to what they said. So foundation can change as well. Any donor, let's just Absolutely. look at it as any supporter, yeah. whether government, whether private, whether state, it doesn't matter, can change their mind. And if you don't have a fallback, because it's going to take time to recuperate the kind of money that you're losing, then you're in big trouble. So the endowment provides you with maybe not the total replication of the gift, but certainly it keeps you from losing sleep at night because you know, as the board and exec, that you have a cushion to help you through bad times. The other reason I like endowments, and this was what I always used when I worked with um, potential donors, is we in the not-for-profit sphere, particularly if we're a smaller mid-level organization, we have no money for research and demonstration. That's really icing on the cake. And yet it's fundamental to the work we do. So I like an endowment to give us a little leeway in the kinds of programs that we want to experiment with. I call that money risk-taking. It allows us to think about what we're doing in alternative ways. And if we lose, we don't succeed. Okay, at least we tried a different pathway or we took took some risks. And we're not always being so safe in the not-for-profit sector. We have to change the way in which we do things. And an endowment allows us the wherewithal to do so. Take a little risk. You know, we, we, we see a different way of doing something or something new that we can try. Well, or let's hide, put, let's or put $10,000 10, yeah, $10, behind a, a project, a right. test project. And as you say, hire an investment manager, want to go into some strategic planning or hire a new officer or uh, employee to do something in a different way. Anything that we want to do that isn't in accordance with the way in which we've done it over the past, mm. an endowment allows us the leeway to try new things. How about the uh, intergenerational equity <laughs> rationale, which cuts both ways? But let's let's deal with the, the 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 pro the pro first. You talk about it in the book. Well, intergenerational equity is really brought up by um, Tobin, who is, I forget his first name, who is a Nobel Prize winner economist at Yale. And what he says is that an endowment provides the same services to the generation today as for the generations in the future. 
So that's what's called intergenerational equity. Well, if I go to the YWCA and I can use the pool or I can have daycare or I can have services because I'm homeless, that those same level of services will be available for the next generation of women because the endowment will be growing and the value of the money will be equal. So that's intergenerational equity. Others argue that this generation is going to be richer than the next generation. So why should this generation supply for the future or the opposite? No one really knows who's going to be richer and who's going to be poorer. There are some like Henry Hansman, who is, I think, now an emeritus professor at the Yale Law School. And it was his work that really got me started in thinking about the economics of endowment. And his thinking says, hey, look at Harvard, Yale, these big universities, these big museums are holding on to so much money in their endowments. Wouldn't it be better that they spend more today? And some people say, yeah, he's right. And others say, no, we have to have intergenerational equity and make sure there's there for the future what's available today. So you can argue it either way. Um, and of course, the favorite argument is the impact argument. Do we want impact today? Do we want to spend all the money we get today and get the biggest impact today? Or are we pushing the can down the road and saying, okay, if we don't spend the money today, we're just continuing the problems down the road. And so what is the impact? So that's why their question is, do we want an endowment? for intergenerational equity, or no, should we spend all the money today and try to solve all our problems today? And that's a decision that organizations have to make. I thought it was very interesting. I had never thought of it this way before I read the book, that that there are folks who say that uh, preserving endowment is, is actually uh, antithetical to intergenerational equity because you folks now are doing what you just said, Debbie, pushing the can down the road, kicking it down the road. You're, you're not investing enough and you're, you're forcing the next generation to deal with a problem that you could solve if you would spend more. So by spending less and preserving it for us, you're actually hurting us because you're, you're levying a problem on us that, that you probably, that, you know, the belief is you'd have a better chance of solving if you put more money toward it. Exactly. And there's another issue in this. We keep talking, Tony, about the organizational organizational decision making. That's also a donor decision. I dealt with many, many donors who said, I don't want my money put away for the future. I want to see impact today. So that's why a board has to discuss what they really want. And once they make that decision, they have to be able to communicate the whys and the wherefore to the donor. But ultimately, it's a donor decision as to how the gift is made. Let's talk a little about that donor. That's, that's, that's excellent. Um, having these conversations with donors, you know, you said earlier, a lot of times donors don't even know that they have the choice to, to give a, a gift to endowment, uh, a, a gift of, in, uh, yeah, that will last in perpetuity and, Listeners, you're just going to have to get the book because Deborah talks about the phrase in perpetuity and what she learned about uh, learned about it. Uh, but you, you know, we can't we can't probe everything. Uh, you got as we scratch the surface, you got to get the book. Um, but let's so let's. But it is valuable to talk about. Um, well, it's all valuable to talk about, but we only have so much time. So uh, your lackluster host, host is choosing to talk about uh, the donor conversation. Having a, having a discussion with donors about an endowment gift. It's time for Tony's Take Two, Planned Giving Accelerator. So here we are talking about endowment building, right? Planned giving can be a great help in building your endowment. Lots of planned gifts come in unrestricted. I encourage you to put as much of that unrestricted money as possible into your endowment. The planned gifts that come restricted, those have to go into your endowment by law. So, uh, you could even take the, uh, the show today. The time for endowment building is now. You could swap out endowment building with planned giving. The time for planned giving is now. 
which actually is ironic because something that uh, Deborah and I are going to be talking about, you'll hear the irony. Just keep on listening. Uh, but for now, <laughs> um, so you want to build endowment? Planned giving is ideal for this. Planned giving accelerator. I will help you get started in planned giving in 2022. The next class starts in January. I'll teach you step-by-step everything you need to get started. It's a six-month course. Used to be a year. Now it's down to six months. Learning exactly the same stuff, exactly the same curriculum, but condensed. And still only one hour uh, per week, an hour a week. But I've taken out some of the free time. And aside from learning from me, there's this incredible peer support and peer learning. The existing class, the current classes, existing, sounds so, geez, existing, sounds so, uh, I don't know, so sterile, the existing classes, the current classes, the, the members right now. You should hear the way they're supporting each other, helping each other with questions about their board or individual board members, um, donors, leadership questions. It's a great supportive community, and I have every reason to believe that the January class will be the same. Supportive. So there's a lot of peer learning as well as learning from me. So you've got enormous support. By no means are you on an island starting your planned giving. That's that's antithetical to Planned Giving Accelerator. So if you'd like to check it out, think about joining the uh, January class. It's all at PlannedGivingAccelerator.com. I hope you will. And I hope you'll be with us. If you want to get your plan giving program going next year, I hope you'll be with me in Planned Giving Accelerator. That is Tony's Take Two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for the time for endowment building, planned giving, is now. Froze. Yeah, we did freeze. Okay. Yeah, I. I made a little joke about a lackluster host and I, I didn't see a, you didn't smile. I was disappointed, but uh, you were frozen. So I'll, I'll take that as a, as an, as an implied smile. Uh, okay. So please, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll edit this out or maybe not. It's not really that bad, but talk about that donor conversation uh, regarding an endowment gift. There are all kinds of donor conversations. The point, and I, and you read about it constantly in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, is the necessity to have the conversation. Because oftentimes people make estate gifts and they don't even talk to the people in the development office. That's one. So there are really two conversations. There's the personal one-on-one conversation with the organization to which the donor is giving the money, but there's also the printed conversation or the website conversation. And that's why I feel it's so important that organizations make the preference and tell donors either verbally or through written material what they want and why. But back to your question on the verbal conversation, I think it's very important to listen to the donor first, everybody in this field. You have to listen to the donor and hear what the donor wants. And you said something earlier in this interview where I did not interrupt you, but I did. Um, <laughs> like, I'm like me, interrupting yeah. you all the time. Like I, like I just get, did right this second. Like I just I, did right now. Yeah, I did get the chills when you said if a donor has directed where the money goes. I think the biggest and the most important conversation that a donor can have is how they want the money used. And the most important usage is unrestricted. And what we have to explain to donors is what they see as a usage today may not even be in the cards in 20 to 50 years. We may have conquered breast cancer. We may have conquered homelessness. That would be wonderful. But it has to be very, very clear to a donor that they they have to think broadly in terms of how they want to direct their money, if they want to direct their money at all, or if they do want to direct their money, that they have to have a second purpose, which could be unrestricted, if the first purpose becomes obsolete. So I was always the... um, 
endowment officer, the fundraising officer, to try to get the most money to be unrestricted because then we would have the flexibility if we wanted to use it for experimentation or if we wanted to use it for a particular program. And I'm not sure that we talk to our donors in a generic fashion. We listen to what they want and then we fashion the gift accordingly, as opposed to communicating what this money is really going to be used for over time. And that's an important conversation. About what our programs may look like in the future. Uh, but but your point that some we may not have some programs in the future. Yeah. And you can direct your program. You can direct. I remember a woman came to me and said, you know, I want to develop. My father was a violinist. I wanted to have an endowment for musical concerts. And the last thing we needed was any more money for musical concerts. We needed money for children that were challenged and needed some educational programs. Mm-hmm. And I was real clear to her that that was the need. And I brought in our educational uh, professional and we talked about it and she completely understood and was willing to make the change. And educational programming can go on forever because it changes over time, but it's broad enough that the function is not restrictive, A, or just broadly restrictive. And her father's name still went on the named endowment, but it was for something that the community needed as opposed to a program that we didn't really need at all, nor want. And some of that unrestricted money could be put into endowment too. Oh, it was an endowment gift. Well, that was, yeah, that was. I'm going back to something you said earlier about um, uh, restricting re- restricted gifts, you know, being part of endowment, but but unrestricted gifts, you know, you could put some oh. of that into. I'm always advocating for clients put as much as possible. You know, I understand. You know, and it's always a tension. Of course, there are immediate needs. We got to keep the lights on. We got to pay the rent and the salaries. But you know, can we peel off anything? Can we peel off 15, 20, 25 percent and put that into the endowment and and spend 75 percent this month? Of, of well, a that's, that's a different conversation. That's a different conversation. There's the conver- endowment conversation, which is the permanent endowment conversation, which could be through an estate gift, a future gift, or a current gift. This woman was making a current gift, which is another issue. We don't think, I think, um, widely enough about talking to donors about a permanent current endowment mm-hmm. gift. So that's A. Um, let's say you have a capital campaign. I always want to peel off a percentage of a capital campaign gift to go into the permanent endowment for maintaining that which we are building. Because otherwise what happens is you put all this money into the capital, into the building. Now all of your costs have gone up but you have no wherewithal to maintain those costs and you put the organization at some kind of risk. Yeah. So it's a very wide, that's the beauty of endowment conversations. They can be very, very wide. They can be very, very creative. And the less you restrict your fundraiser's imagination and your donor's imagination, the more impact current and future that a gift might have. Let's have a little fun with the phrase planned giving. Uh, I have a company called Martinetti Planned Giving Advisors. Uh, I run an online class called Planned Giving Accelerator. Uh, But there may may be a common ground or maybe not. You know, that's fine. But Share, you're, you're the guest, so you go first. You share your thinking about the phrase planned giving. As I said in the book, I never allowed either my staff or hopefully my consultant clients or even a donor to use the word planned giving. We all plan our giving, whether it's our annual distributions or our future distributions. So planned giving as it is perceived or understood by the experts in the field are 
primarily future gifts. And I, my, my, my problem with the language is a, we all plan our gifts. So it's a, it's the, the phrase is really only for the expert experts in the field. And it sometimes more often than not turns off boards and donors because they don't know what you're talking about. And they think it is so convoluted and so expensive and you need fancy, you should excuse me, consultants to help you go through this. Well, you're one too. You're you're a consultant. Yeah. And, but I don't ever use the word plan giving in my consultancy. I use endowment development. So that's my first issue with the words plan giving. The second issue with it is plan giving is a tool. And what we don't say is why do we want to use these plan gifts? What is the ultimate purpose of the plan gift? Do we want the plan gift to be used today? Okay, so I'm going to make a quote unquote, I'm going to set up a charitable gift annuity. It's a future gift. When you, the organization, receive the principal after I pass away, what are you going to do with it? So my feeling is that we should concentrate on the use of the tool. What do we want the gift to be used for as opposed to the tool itself? So that's two. Three, Fancy dancy plan gifts, charitable lead trust, charitable remainder trust, charitable what have you trust. Those are going to come to most organizations through a professional advisor. They're not going to go from the donor to the organization. So I concentrate on the book in the book with what kinds of gifts are easy for an organization to do to pursue where no attorney is needed. And then on the other hand, I think it's very important to have outside counsel so that if you do receive as an organization, there are kinds of two ways to look at it. If the organization is the trustee of the gift that the professional advisor constructs, then the organization needs an outside counsel to make sure that the organization's interests are protected through the document. But we don't need all these fancy attorneys in-house and what have you, especially small to medium-sized organizations. There are lots of things that they can get, current and future endowment gifts, that have no relationship to these trust gifts. But again, my 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 argument is a the language is scary to the non-professional and even fundraisers get scared by, by the language so they don't discuss these kinds of gifts with their donors and ultimately what is the purpose of the sophisticated so-called tool and what do we want to do with it in the organization, and that comes back to the board discussion. Okay, yeah, All right. I think we I think we largely agree. You know, my my use of the phrase "planned giving" is exclusive to those who are. I'm not even going to say planned giving experts because I, I I work with startup programs, so they're not planned giving experts. They, they may never be, but they can have a they can have a planned giving program. So I'm talking to folks who are inside nonprofits. But I understand your point too. You're right. And I, I agree that it's an off-putting phrase for a lot of people. It's just so well ingrained that I, my, my message constantly is don't be intimidated by planned giving. Debunk the myths of planned giving. Yeah. Planned giving is not a black box. You don't, you know, I've got five myths. You don't need an attorney, like the things you ticked off. Debunk the top five myths. You don't, the, the myth that you need an attorney. The myth that you have to offer compl- complicated gift options. Uh, the myth that you have to spend a lot of money. Um, I can't even remember the other two of my own debunked myths, but there's, there's a lot of mystique and mysteriousness. And it, it does, it absolutely intimidates lots of non-plan giving professionals. And, and those are the folks I'm talking to because I want to start up programs where it's. Endowment building. See, again, the plan yeah. giving is the tool. Right. It's the that tool. Is yeah. my, that's my primary right. um, complaint. 
is A, it's the tool. We don't talk about the purpose of the planned gift, how it's spent when we actually receive the proceeds, A. And B, I love Doug White's comment to me. He calls the phrase planned giving calcified. He was using it, what, 30 years ago. It's right. old. It's, it's, it's time yeah. for us to change. And well, that's uh, you get that's so many- I've, had, I've had Doug on the show. Every time he publishes a new book, uh, <laughs> I, I have him on the show. Um, the fascinating one was uh, the Robertson case at, uh, was it Yale? It was Yale. I don't was think, it? I, wasn't oh. it Texas? I'm not sure. No. No. All right. Maybe it wasn't Yale either, but it was, it was some time ago. He's working on a new book now. So when he gets that one out, I'll, I'll have him again. Well, um, I think my biggest compliment, Tony, but, was when um, two things happened. I did write him about some of the ideas that I was thinking about and never dreamt he would reply. And he replied in this long, long email and supported everything. And what was even more interesting in what he wrote to me is even with that act that we began this conversation with the Uniform Prudent Management Act that's in all of these states, there's so many organizations that don't even pay attention to it. Even when they get donor-designated gifts, where the donor says, I want it to go into the endowment, the organization is either unaware of the act or tends to ignore the act. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think consultants like you and me have even a larger role is to help the boards come to grips with what they are doing with these monies and what they want to do with these monies. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an important conversation and, and, and the policies behind it that we talked about. Um, right. I, I agree. I agree. We uh, we. I guess what I'm uh, so you, you, I have a few things. You you have a lot of footnotes to uh, email emails with Doug White. So you're you're crediting Doug White in lots of cases. Uh, email well, with Doug White. He whatever. is the guru in this. Yeah, no, he's, he's a gentleman. He's he's right. absolutely. He's gentleman. a gentleman. He's darling. He's the guru, and it was very important to me that he agreed with my arguments because my arguments are not run of the mill. They are outside of what we actually, for most organizations, actually operate yeah. uh, today. And that's the reason for writing a book, because you're trying to affect change than the way in which the field operates. Uh, I would disagree with, with you and Doug and uh, plan giving being calcified. <laughs> I would say it's well known. Uh, it has been around for a long time, I had 60, 70 years or something like that, back going to Robert Sharp Sr. Uh, he was an early practitioner. I I don't know who coined the phrase. I don't know if he claims that. I mean, he's no longer with us. But um, anyway, it's a it's a time worn phrase. Uh, calcified, yeah, calcified is a little overstating overstating its uh, its uh, its utility or lack of its lack of utility. I think it's just a well 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 known, well understood phrase. Um, with professionals in the field, but yeah, not the people yeah. that it really no. matters, which is the donor. And the board decision maker. That's where we agree. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely agree with not talking to, not putting on your website, planned giving options. You know, you suggest a not bunch that I. I your professional. I am yeah. the director of planned giving. Yeah. Because huh? that is an outward is that facing, right? that's an outward facing title. You can know internally that the person works on planned gifts. You want, if you want to call them them internally, but outward facing, yeah, endowment development, long term, long term giving officer, you know. Uh, I, I tend to not like the silos anyway, because I think the long-term giving officer should be working a lot with the annual giving officer who's working a lot with the peer-to-peer fundraiser. Of course, in some organizations, that's all one person. Um, all right. All right. Deborah, just, why don't you leave us with a little um, endowment motivation? I think we've, you know, I, I feel like we've given it good justice, uh, you know, but you you wrap up with some final words on endowment. You didn't warn me about that one. <laughs> oh, come on. This is, you've been thinking about this for a year. You wrote a book I, on I've endowment. been thinking about this for more for 25 years. Yeah, and you put it all in a book. Right. And that's why I've concentrated on it. And those of my colleagues through the field say it's about time you wrote about it because you believe in it so strongly. I believe in endowment is like a retirement fund. If you don't put away money for the future, and you're not going to have a future. And it's the board's responsibility to think, yes, 
we have to worry about today, but we have a responsibility to future generations and future clientele to make sure that this organization is healthy today and tomorrow. And that's why I think endowment is so important. Today and tomorrow. If you, you see it on all the social networks and the nonprofit communities, sustainability, sustainability. Well, if you if you want to live sustainability and, and walk be the healthy, walk of, and be healthy, yes. it's really not only sustainability, but to be healthy in your sustainability, to be healthy in your retirement. That's why we have our IRAs. We want to live a qualitative life. And we want to make sure that our organizations have a qualitative future. I always thought healthy was subsumed in sustainable. I always thought that meant, you know, not just not just starving, getting by, but, you know, you're you're healthy, you're sustainable. You're, so, if, if, so if you want to walk the walk of sustainability, talk about talk to your board about endowment development, endowment growth, do it correctly. And uh, the book will help you. <laughs> Time for endowment building is now. There's other chat. There's a great. There's a case study on uh, a program called Life and Legacy at the Grinspoon Foundation. We we didn't get into that, but there's a there's a chapter on that. Could help you get started. Um, you know who are your best uh, your best prospects for for endowment type gifts, and more about the titles, uh, and then the jargon. Just that's the book, and the author of it is Deborah Kaplan Pallavi. You'll find her practice at DebraPolivy.com and the book, The Time for Endowment Building, is now. Debbie, thank you very much for sharing. Really enjoyed thank, it. Thank you, Tony. It was a fun conversation. I'm glad. My pleasure. And good thank luck you. to you in your plan giving consultancy. <laughs> That's very gracious of you. Thank you. See? And you didn't say it too snarky either, just a little bit. You had a little bit of a pejorative tone, but I'm willing to overlook it because it wasn't, it wasn't much. It was only like 10 or 15%. Uh, I detected a little. We're going to play it back. Uh, there was a little snarkiness, but it was a small percent, percent. No, no, look. Okay, wait. I got to finish up for our listeners because next week, Gene Takagi returns with risk management part two. And if you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you find it at tonymartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs>